can you be so shitty to people? How can you stand yourself? I guess there's just two kinds of people, Miss Sandstone. My kind of people and assholes. It's rather obvious which category you fit into. Have a nice day. It's a bird, bitch! <laughs> Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your humble narrator, James Kent. And with me, remote from his dungeon in Queens, it's Bill from Queens. Bill, say hello to the people. Good morning, Jimmy. Great to see you. Hello, people. Mm, Yes, it's great to see you, Billy. I know, Billy is, uh, this is sort of a rare treat. Uh, he keeps himself very uh, mysterious, even more mysterious than Teal. And now I have two mysterious guys, two weeks in a row, captured on video for the world to see. It, it all speaks to your um, power of personality. What can I tell uh, and you? And persuasion. You know, if, if, if ever, yes, if ever you wanted to start a cult, I'm, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> uh, you do pretty well. <laughs> I just basically said, I will reveal all the secrets, Bill, if you don't come on the show. That's right. That's right. And and so here you are. You're two of the two people, the start of your Dreamlanders. There you go. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. You know, it's funny when you say that Dreamlanders, and we're going to talk about uh, John Waters movies, I think, in the second half of the program. Uh, he had his uh, cronies, uh, the Dreamlanders, he called them, and his production company, Dreamland. Uh, when we were all hanging out back in the days of NYU, we kind of created this little uh, group of stock actors and people that were in our stuff. And we called yes. it uh, Teal's Cavalcade of Stars, I think it was. Yes. Yes. There was um, John Garofalo. Johnny G. Yep. Somewhere in somewhere in Las Vegas, Nevada, we think. And uh, uh, Viva. Was, uh, I forget who. Was, uh, uh, Christina Kuda. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was. The, that was. There was. We, we think we tracked her down in the Midwest somewhere. And. Uh, you know, there may have been a few police reports. We don't know. I, I just remember uh, doing some of the films and stuff, hanging out. It was very interesting. There was one film in particular, I remember, that we worked on. And it was all the way in downtown Manhattan on the weekend. And it was back because I, I was just there a couple of weeks ago. And incredible the change over 30 years because the financial district in downtown around Tribeca about 30 years ago on a weekend, it would be like a ghost town. And you could shoot. It's true, we were down there, and there was no one there. Yeah, and you could shoot in the middle of the day. You know, just pretty much like out in the street, walking around, and you wouldn't see a person. There'd be tumbleweeds like blowing through the place. <laughs> and, and now, now when you go down, now it's really packed, jam jam. It's like a city within a city. Bridge and tunnel people moved further down. <laughs> That's right. That's they right. migrated further down. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, uh, Karen Silas. Karen Silas from What Happened Was. There you go. She moved down there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's probably not a place in Manhattan anymore where you could, like, live cheaply anymore. I mean, again, it's a very relative <laughs> term, cheap, for living in Manhattan. And, you know, it's very funny that one of the places that became a big hipster neighborhood and a lot of people moved to was Washington Heights. Wait a minute. Are we tying things together? <laughs> I can't believe it. 
what a what a coincidence because there's a movie a musical that came out called in the heights and i think it was about yes washington heights though though uh, if you think about the controversy that's like sprung up uh, people don't seem to think that it represents washington heights that seems to be the dust up i think yeah i i don't know a lot about the dust up i've well, just you kind don't of follow the than, social like, I read media a few headlines i know i don't and <laughs> Uh, but I, I actually, uh, I've, my wife used to work a little bit in Washington Heights. Okay. I actually used to have to go up there for work a lot. I know the area, uh, fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the kind of place, Jimmy, you know, that, um, I know that you, uh, uh, like kind of, um, good food and it's a place where you can get some really kind of great different, uh, kind of ethnic cuisines. A like, diverse mix of food possibilities. Yes. Yep, you have yep, yep. Wendy's and McDonald's. <laughs> With some Taco Bell and all the chains where we That's were talking right. about real that, places. <laughs> uh, when I used to have to go up there for work, there was a, um, a a coffee place that I used to go to, like a corner, sort of not too unlike the uh, in the in the film, that you would get your coffee and it would be a cafe con leche and there was this giant cauldron of just steamed milk. They would just put a, a ladle <laughs> in and like throw it into your coffee and they would have in the window, these hot ham and cheese pastries Ooh. that just were like, you'd walk by and you were like, you had to go in and get them. And, and you did. Uh, so, uh, and oh, and I did both coming and going usually. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> uh, really, really. Those were Bill Muir, the heavy years. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, fort- fortunately I uh, maintained an active lifestyle. So, uh, uh, you know, walking to the subway, but, but the, the subway stations up there, actually, they use them in uh, Joker as well. Right. You know, they're like some of the long tunnel scenes, mm-hmm. but I, I just, um, I, I love, it's a beautiful neighborhood. And so we're talking about In the Heights. I really enjoyed the movie. You did. I did because it's a celebration of New York at a time where I feel a lot of people professionally, politically are taking shots at New York. I can't, I can't tell you the number of people I've met over the past couple of months, you know, seem to have come to the impression that New York City is on fire all the time, that, you know, it's been taken over by, you know, kind of uh, anarchist uh, terrorists. Where, and, what reports um, are you listening you know, to? I don't hear this stuff. Where I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking about, I'm, I, these are these people I meet and they're like, oh, oh, it doesn't seem like there's too much crime on your block. You know, they're expecting, you know, it's you're going to step out and, you know, like, you know, you get all these people who come in from out of town and they, they're they acting like they're Snake Plissken, like running around, you know, in <laughs> New York City. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, know, you know, but that was or, always you know, the gonna, case. Like, they're going to walk to the end of the block and they're going to be like, you know, can you dig it? Didn't you, you know? used to have it where like you used to leave your car doors unlocked just because you knew people were going to break into it to look for stuff. So you just left it unlocked so that they wouldn't damage the car true or uh, not true one, oh, true mm. true 100 percent true 100 percent true i had like kind of a permanent cut in the um the sealant by the uh the mirror where people just would cut in you know and uh drop in a a coat hanger and it just oh was not even worth it to lock it because it was just <laughs> so easy for somebody and i'm like hey man you want like old dunkin donut bags have at it you know but like I said, there are people who I, I've I've recently, you know, people who are from out of town have come in and um, just I've I've met at social occasions, and like I said, they're they're expecting that you know they're going to have to fight their way to Coney Island. 
you know and, <laughs> and uh, now we got a warrior reference yeah i had a time was when i first moved to new york that first uh, it was like beginning of the second semester uh right before the second semester started i got in early and i had this girlfriend and she just got back into town and she comes over to my apartment because back then you know you couldn't just really like always call and stuff because you know people didn't have cell phones or anything so you just sometimes would just show right. up somewhere and shows right. up and happy's here and she's like oh we should go out to dinner so we go out to dinner close to her house and it, it, dinner at the time was an uno's pizza um it wasn't the mega chain that it is I, now. oh on sixth avenue on yeah, yeah, sixth yeah. Avenue. well no it was on um it was, this was one near third avenue Third Avenue and 12th Street-ish, that whole area. Anyways, okay. I'm just telling you the story. Billy, I'm telling you the story. I know you okay. you get your facts mixed up all the time. I don't know the exact location, no, no, but no, I no, know no. it was okay. near where her apartment was. And anyways, mm-hmm. so we go there and we just order the food, right? And we're waiting for the food to come. And that's when she breaks up with me, right? She just got back into town, right? I'm thinking to myself, couldn't you have done that before I ordered like a meal? I mean, I was not going to be eating any food at that point, right? So, <laughs> well, I'm just telling you the story. So we so we break Should up. Take the garlic knots home. <laughs> the garlic knots. Yeah, there was no garlic knots there at the time. I, I don't remember what we what we ordered, but I guarantee you there was not a lot of food eaten because I was sick to my stomach. So now the time, right, where I should have just walked away. Just gone the other direction and said goodbye. But I, and it was like, oh, I'm going to walk her back to the apartment, right? As we're still talking. And I'm kind of like, Whoa, what's going on? She had just got back into town. I don't I don't know what she was going to do with her car. But I don't know what the deal was there. Because how is she going to get back to wherever she was from? She had left her leather jacket in the car, right? And she said like uh-huh. that. Remember like the 3rd Avenue, 12th Street, that you'd have like that parade of of night of night walkers <laughs> walking around the block and stuff. Well, of course, yes. we get to a, yeah, I mean, I, mean I gotta tell you, it, it was, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to I, interrupt, but you I'll never the, forget. You ruined the story, but that's uh, Yeah, I know. I know. But I, I okay, but I'll never forget. I was on third Avenue and 12th street and I was back in the days where you actually had public pay phones. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. I was making a call to somebody around there and I look over in the next pay phone. There's a guy um, lighting up uh, a crack vial. Like of course. right there, you know, right. You know, my neighbor, but yeah. So go ahead. Continue. Oh, so we get there. And of course, I'm, I'm, all I was supposed to do was just walk her home and then leave. There's a huge, big hole in the back of her car window. And somebody had busted that window and taken that leather jacket. And of course, then she was upset. Mm-hmm. So I had to go in. So that was like even more torturous. And all I could think of was if for some reason I had decided to just go the other way, and not come in. Would she somehow think that I ran around and got mad and smashed her window in her car? And so I'm kind of glad that I was with her. So she knew that it wasn't me who broke into her car to steal her leather jacket. <laughs> so anyways, that was just like a you know little crime story. <laughs> but anyways, in the Heights. Okay. So I'm going to give you what the controversy is the best as I can understand. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to talk about the movie first though itself? Or like what's your, what's your view well, of the I film? I want to talk about the movie in a second. And then I want to talk about the controversy okay. first, right? Because it ties in with, look, I'm a white guy, all right? I, I'm certainly not representation. Yeah, of, I, I, of, me, of me, me too, me and, too, Jimmy, and, Jimmy, Jimmy, me too, me too. And, you know, as Robert Robert De Niro kind of paraphrase him in Casino, I'm just another dumb fucking white man, you know? So go, go ahead. And, and, and you are. <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, you know, whatever this, do- I don't have a dog in this fight other than, and, and I'll right. be honest, 
what I've heard is the after effect controversy and people having to apologize and whatever for not representing enough. And I've heard about what the controversy is. I don't guess follow anybody that was very upset over this. And this is my issue again with Twitter is I think there are a lot of people that get very excited and get a little bit of a high that they can post something Maybe they do it on purpose to be controversial or they pick something that they think will trend and they go and post it and then they watch the reaction and they get probably momentarily feeling really good of look what I was able to do Uh, more so than were they really upset. Um, you know, did they go through IMDb and look at the cast and then look up every ethnicity to see, haha, I was right. I, I, you know, I don't know whether or not, they did a good or bad thing. I mean, when you're casting a movie, you know, casting directors, I mean, I don't think that they're really thinking, let's go down, spend some time in Washington Heights and see if we can pluck the right mix of people that really represent the neighborhood. I I, I was just thinking this is a, you know, was supposed to be a nice musical film to maybe lift me out of the doldrums of the pandemic. Right. I, I guess the subject matter of the fact that it was Washington Heights and what I was going to get, am I going to get an authentic neighborhood? I mean, it's a musical. So, I mean, I think authenticity goes out the window a little bit. Yes. So, I guess, you know, I saw it before the con- – I saw it the opening weekend and then the, then the controversy sort of leaked out, I guess, by the end of the weekend and into last week. I really wasn't focused on that. I was just focused on – does this movie give me anything? When you want to critique a movie, there's probably a lot of other things that you could focus on and critique this film. And I just wondered, like, you know, were you sitting down to watch In the Heights so you could, like, again, pinpoint whether or not this film was going to be completely 100% representational of what you feel was there or, haha, this is missing from the movie and the casting? I, I, I don't know. I'm just... I feel like this is a slippery slope of like, is there any movie ever going to be satisfied for audiences today? And why this movie? Like, why is there, there's so many other movies that you could say, well, this doesn't rep, you know what I mean? Like, it's just a weird thing that for some reason, this has to be the the standard bearer for uh, the Latinx community. I've given you some stuff. Yeah, you have, you have. And I, I me. understand, I, I don't know anything about the motivations of people since I really didn't read the critiques. Uh, the only thing... I know is what they're talking about is that they they felt that uh, a lot of the performers were lighter skinned Latinx actors and Lin-Manuel Miranda, my understanding is issued a statement apologizing. That's, that's the controversy as I understand it, correct? Well, there was the controversy and, and he's had to respond saying we we could have done better or whatever. Again, I'm, I've never been to Washington Heights, you know, as most people. And maybe is that what people are worried? Like, they're going to think that this is what Washington Heights is like, that people jump out in, on the street and dance and <laughs> perform musical numbers at the swimming pool. There, there is that swimming pool up there. You know, the issue is, you're absolutely right, one of representation. And it really is, the problem is, how do you portray any community, any neighborhood in its incredible. There's the the song Carnival de Barrio at, towards the end, which I think really kind of gets it is the idea how, and when I was growing up, the identity of being Spanish as a kind of monolithic entity is, is often what it was, I thought, in this country, what it meant to kind of all f- fall under the umbrella of Hispanic, right? So when I was growing up, in New York, everyone is is sort of defined by their identity, you know, their ethnic identity. And that's kind of a very 
important thing, always was. And for me, my experience, this is just, you know, for me to talk about is that growing up Spanish kind of was this all-encompassing identity, you know, was kind of based around, you know, and it, and it could be people from, from Spain itself. It could be, you know, people who are Mexican and New York, New York people tended to be the Puerto Rican community was really New York's largest, you know, Spanish community and, and Cuban community as well. And the thing about like being in a place like Queens or Washington Heights, you know, I, I've been very lucky, very fortunate to get to know, work with, uh, have my kids go to school and become friends with um, many people in the, you know, Latinx community. Over here near where I live, not too far, where I actually used to work a long time ago is this place where you have um, this incredible mixture of, you know, 200 nationalities, 60 countries, 60 languages. And, uh, you know, I got to meet people who were Korean from Argentina and all these just sort of insanely diverse kind of ethnic identities. And so it, it just made me kind of aware that it's very hard to reduce to kind of one size fits all, which let's be honest, Hollywood tends to do. And 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 I think you you highlighted that sort of what's problematic. And to come back to specifically the Washington Heights thing, Washington Heights is largely a Dominican community. And and Lin Manuel Miranda is Puerto Rican, or of Puerto Rican descent, and he uh, grew up in Inwood, kind of uh, right adjacent to Washington Heights. And I I think. The issue here is, and if if you're going to talk about generalities, people tend to make a distinction. Again, it's it's the whole idea of Afro-Latino identity and that people who are Dominican, and this is, I've met Dominicans with blue eyes and very, very fair skin. But if when people tend to generalize about Dominicans, they it's that they are often seen as as being of of darker skin color. And I think that's the source of the problem. I'm sorry to go on this long tangent about it, but that that sort of to kind of boil it down. That's that's my perspective. I, I think I think I think our, our our listeners, if they haven't dropped off already, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, you're a big box office draw, Billy. Okay, so here's so we, again, we're trying to we're trying to understand this, right? Yeah. So I, but I understand. Just to come flat out, if you're going to represent the neighborhood, I understand what that critique is. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Suckle on my zipper. <laughs> that was my Austin Powers. Uh, or or Dr. Evil. Anyways, so the lead guy, I guess there's, I mean, there's so many stories going on in this movie, but the lead guy, Anthony Ramos, he was in Hamilton. He played uh, two roles, but he played Hamilton's son. This is on the original Broadway production. So right. he's a friend of Lin-Manuel Miranda's. And obviously, you know, another thing, you want to cast somebody that, that can sing, right? So right. they get, can sing. He is Puerto Rican. He is not from the Dominican Republic. And that right. is probably where the issue goes is that his character is supposed to be from the Dominican Republic. Because remember, his whole character wants to go back. Right. So I think there's where he gets into trouble. Uh, and I say he is like the, the, the filmmakers because they cast a Puerto Rican for a Dominican Republic role. Right. His love interest in the movie, Vanessa, Melissa yes. Barrera, I, I knew her from a show that was on Showtime called Vida. And I, I I think she's a great actress. She's from Mexico. You know, so no Dominican Republic actress there. Uh, Nina, another lead, Leslie Grace, she is from the Dominican Republic. So there's a right. character. Corey Hawkins, 
not from the Dominican Republic. He's from Washington, D.C. He's African-American. Right. Abuela, right. she's from Cuba. And Jimmy Smith, right. he's Puerto Rican. Uh, Daphne right. Rubin Vega, she's Panama. Uh, Stephanie Beatrice, who was on Brooklyn 911, uh, she's Colombian and Bolivian. And Dasha Blanco, who from Orange is the New Black, she's from the Dominican Republic. And this, of course, I, those right. are my, those are kind of the, the the big lead. So I'm guessing that some of the fury, if you're going to have a lead character who's from the Dominican Republic, what they're saying is that Hollywood just thinks, oh, any Latin actor does. And I think the old Hollywood thinks about who's the best actor that we know, you know, for singer that we want for this role, which was Lin-Manuel Miranda's role on Broadway. And of course, he is also right. not Dominican. So that is the issue. The question would be if they had changed it to his character wanting to go back to Puerto Rico, I wonder, would there be as much of a controversy? I would say perhaps not for a couple of reasons. I mean, the thing is that neighborhood, as I said, does have a more of a Dominican character. Um, and also the time period where he's representing, you know, in the, it's really kind of comes out of the early 2000s. I just want to say when there were these rolling blackouts, yeah. The blackouts, if you know the history, it was around 2003, 2004 is when those blackouts happened. Yep. Um, they never specifically- Yeah, our neighborhood got shut down too. It's okay, Bill. You're represented in my book. Okay? You're like, hey, <laughs> hey, man, over in Queens, we had some issues with that too. And we had some musical numbers. Okay? It was the Irish section, <laughs> right? We had some Lord Flatley things going on. Okay? You don't hear me complaining <laughs> that they didn't make a movie about me. Okay? Queens, over here- 2003, man, represent. <laughs> it's all right, Billy. Just, we, we understand. Okay, thank we, you. We understand. Okay. Thank you. You've thank been you. represented yes. enough. There was a whole movie a couple of years ago called The Irishman. <laughs> okay? You even got it yourself in the title. Think De Niro. Well, see, That's right. Robert De Niro, was he an yeah. Irish? Oh, but, was he uh, Irish? Uh, I don't know. Go. I don't there think so. But he played Jimmy the Gent in Goodfellas. That was also Irish. That's mm, right, he was. See? Yes. Interesting. Uh, and you, you may have opened up a can of worms. No, but... Uh, the problem is the movie kind of sets itself. It doesn't really say what period, but with it basically, it's kind of like wants to have it two days. It's kind of like saying, well, it's today. We don't want to go into like, what does it look like in 2003? So they kind of make it like it's fairly now and you're just supposed to go, well, mm -hmm. there could have been some blackouts. But I think that they might have been better if they had actually said it in like 2003 and made that specific and then also, you know, done some tailoring so that we felt like it was then. I don't know what the, the, uh, the mix right. of the neighborhood was back in then. Was there, you know, was it? I mean, it's, it's become more gentrified mm -hmm. as we were talking about before with a lot of Manhattan, but still maintains a very, very strong, as I would say, mostly Dominican uh, character. Well, like I said, the lead guy is obviously supposed to be from the Dominican Republic. He keeps wanting to go back there. Um, and you're supposed to think that he's back there, like narrating the story. I don't know if I have necessarily a problem with it, but I'm also not Dominican. And I probably never even knew. I don't, you know, like I said, I didn't go back to look and see, was he Dominican or not? Right. With this conversation, see, it's just a con sometimes I'm like willing to change. I'm not, I'm not like going to start tweeting about it, but I, I, I can see right. where that's a problem because of the lead actor not representing and that one casting change might have dissolved some of that controversy. And, and, and I think again, it's the, the issue is it's sort of similar. I mean, it, it's, it's somewhat different in the sense that all of these societies are 
post-colonial societies, right? In terms of um, all of the Americas. And there's a color line that, and, you know, there's often a kind of racial hierarchy that in the same way that exists in the United States. And I think it's kind of somewhat adjacent to a conversation. I know you and Teal have been, I, I think, very clear and very strong about uh, the benefits of kind of um, having greater representation of people in color in film. I, I mean, that's that's been a, a big point of discussion for you two. Yes? Well, let's put it this way. What I do see is when I go back and watch, and I do go back and watch a lot of um, movies from you know other periods other than now, and it is surprising. It's not surprising, but like it's so glaring, just how white those movies were. Right. And, and right. And, and then and so I mean, you know, there's definitely there's been some changes. I, I I always feel bad when a when a film here it is, in Lin Manuel, I guess his defense. I mean, here it is this is a guy who gets to put on Broadway, yes, a, a musical that isn't about white people at all. Right. But then he gets more critiqued than. When you throw in your token character here and there, that seems to get a pass. Right. It's like a can't win thing. Jimmy, exactly. And there, there are a lot of people. I mean, let's let's talk about the issue of casting in Hamilton and and race. And um, I have met people who find, you know, I, I I have come across people who find the whole idea of um, the um, interracial casting in Hamilton offensive. Why? I'm just curious as to what is their rationale for why they find that. Why? Because they're they're just, they feel like it's ahistorical. They feel like, you know, I mean, and there are people actually on the left who make uh, critiques of it as well. They feel that it kind of, there there are people who feel that it puts a a multicultural kind of patina of acceptance on the founders. Uh, So there are people (laughs) on the left who who criticized it, you know. um, Well, it's no 1776, the musical, where everything was happy-go-lucky about our... uh, clear march for independence and freedom <laughs> exactly 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 with, but i mean you know uh, that's why i think people you know and rather than look at like the conversations that things like hamilton th- that do open yeah and i mean even in, i guess with with people critique here's a piece of i guess art that actually starts engaging a dialogue beyond hey man kiss me kate did you catch that? You know, like, there's, like, there's not, you know, I mean, there's so much stuff where you can't even uh, go. And I would argue that, like, this in the Heights, if anything, it is pretty fluff. There's really nothing other than what they've created with the controversy. The, the material itself, there's just, it's like a standard story of like trying to get to one thing to another. It's it's classic Broadway, classic Hollywood. You might even say cliched. You might. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I mean, but but that would be to knock it. You enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed it. My wife did not. Um, she compared the opening to there's a kids musical that um, we've seen maybe more times because of all my children, like ever. Elmo, welcome to Gra- uh, Elmo and Grouchland. <laughs> that's a musical, <laughs> and she compared the opening that's to hilarious. Elmo and Grouchland, where like everyone's so starting the their day like on Sesame, Sesame Street. Street. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's basically. I've already kind of forgotten about the movie. One week later, that's a problem. Right. The story didn't really engage me. I found it kind of slow. And, you know, I love I love multiple stories, right? But at the same time, it really, this movie didn't have a strong focus. I really didn't know. Right. And the convention about the guy, the, the non-Dominican, talking to the kids, right. keep coming back, telling this story. 
to me, it was so obvious. It was Navi. It was Navi. The yeah. character was Navi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Us Navi, which was U.S. Navy. Yes. <laughs> Dad named yes. him there. So funny. But uh, it was so obvious to me that this guy, we were going to have some kind of reveal where he did not go to the Dominican Republic because it made no sense. It would make no sense for the rest of the movie that it's so great and fun there <laughs> that you would leave. And so right. I, when you don't buy into that, that's a problem. Another thing, it's funny, for all the great uh, songs in Hamilton and what it hit, this feels like he was working his way to Hamilton because I don't feel like the songs are very strong. They're not very memorable. I can't remember anything in that movie. Uh, or musical, I, but I enjoy, I mean I enjoyed myself as I was watching it, but it's just it's not as strong a work as Hamilton at all. It just isn't, and it's fe- unfair to compare the two. But a hundred percent, there are moments that I thought were you know had a, a kind of beautiful lyricism. There, the moment, the scene where they're dancing on the side of the building, I thought was really well done. Well, I don't usually like magic realism, but if you're going to buy into musicals, well, magic realism pl- comes into play. This is what I would say. Absolutely. So uh, John M. Uh, Chu, the guy who directed the movie, he also directed Crazy Rich Agents, which I hated. I thought it was terrible. Okay. I hated that movie. I didn't see it. Here's what I liked about this film. Well, I thought that the musical numbers were really well directed and choreographed, yes. including things like that. Why the magic realism worked in the movie for me is he did something that you don't see in a lot of other musicals. For this fantasy, it felt... Like it was in a real place, like it's shot on real streets. It's not that mm-hmm. typical, like, oh, we're doing a musical. We're going to throw lots of lighting and it doesn't matter because it's a musical. And so there's a big, like, flashing key light on my face that could only come from a studio light and that the interiors are so obviously set and yet it's widescreen and it looks like it's on a soundstage and there's no apartment that could look that big. Not in this movie. The apartments felt very real, I'm just going to say. The cinematography is by Alice Brooks. Uh, this seems to be her first big feature, though she's done a lot of other things. I think that the cinematography in this movie is incredible. And the reason mm-hmm. why I say that is because it, to me, doesn't feel like, I, especially, where I don't know whether it was shot on film or, or digital, but it looks very naturalistic. And for a musical, that's yes. surprising. You have like that... Uh, the pool scene, but yes. usually those those uh, scenes in, in musicals today, they'd be so filled with extra light and almost a high gloss. So it's like, hey, this is a fantasy. But instead, they keep the musical number in reality, but they do those like little CGI elements that come throwing in that are kind of like surprise right. little fun. And like I said, when they're out on the little banister, and next thing you know, they're going on the side of the wall and they're walking. It's kind of magical. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's 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 what I like. And that's that's, you know, what musicals should be at their best. And I, I think, as you said, um, I don't know of how much consequence the story really is in terms of its it's, um, you know, it's deeper social statement. But I, I do think it's it's kind of of a piece, I think, of with Hamilton in terms of, you know, as you said, talking about the immigrant experience. And I think it ultimately at the end, there's often, you know, this desire to return. Think about movies like The Quiet Man, you know, even the movie that kind of came out around the same time, Belly, um, the hype Williams movie with Nas and DMX who just passed. The idea of going back 
and kind of leaving America. And here in the end, you know, he affirms, he decides to stay. And I think in that way, it's kind of a piece uh, with of Hamilton in the sense that it's kind of affirming American identity. Yeah, so I, I liked it. I, I really, and I, and I liked it. Part of the reason I liked it was, again, right now, just the idea of seeing a story set in New York that has a very kind of positive view of New York, I think is great and much needed. Well, there you go. And uh, I didn't really like it as much as you did. I, I had a good time, though. But I don't know if I'm going to, like, watch it again, you know? I mean, but but again, I, I, I feel that we don't have a lot of movies. And another, like, a blow to me in my town, I've kind of complained about it on the show many times, this, uh, you know, crappy multiplex that we have. And we're lucky because where I live, it's pretty right. remote, but it's one of the city areas. And if it wasn't for this theater... The next like theater, which isn't a, a, an eight-person theater, uh, an eight-screen theater, is about forty-five minutes away. Well, it's been closed since the pandemic. It's now permanently closed. It's not going to. Oh it, wait, I thought that you had gone to see it when you saw Tenet, but you went somewhere. Oh, else I had to, to go an hour it, and forty minutes away to see that. To see Tenet, yeah. So, by the way, can I tell you something? That's insane to me because I have now sat through Tenet twice. Like I've put it on the TV while I was doing some work Dolls. or something. And <laughs> yeah, and I I couldn't be bothered to pay attention to it when it was in my living room. So <laughs> well, the big, idea of driving an hour and 40 minutes, go it's ahead. It's a big go screen ahead. experience. And, uh, you know, I mean, then it seemed like, okay, movies are going to open up. It'll be a little different. And uh, then, of course, Yeah, movies- yeah. And, and you're, you were there to support it. Yeah. Um, right. But like, right. you know, now- well, I don't like the HBO Max, like put it on instead, because the natural inclination is if I own HBO, well, why do I want to go to a theater to see what I can see in my living room? It's just that's a hard thing for me to to go. So, you know, I, I think I would have enjoyed In the Heights a little bit differently if I could have seen it in the theater. If you'd seen it, in the, if you'd seen it, uh, absolutely. But I can't I would see it in the theater even if I wanted to. I'd have to go pretty far away. It was playing, like I could go over the border to New York, I could go like an hour and a half to yes. Saratoga Springs and there's a theater right. there. But that's, I mean, an hour and a half. Now, what I'm going to probably have to do in the future, uh, and there's some talk, I mean, they're hoping that maybe another company can come in and, you know, the theater's got all the projections and stuff there. So maybe someplace will buy it, but that's going to take time. So, you know, if there's movie, once movies come out that I really want to see, I'll have to do like double features. I'll have to like go down there, you know, for like, a day. Spend the day with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, so, so it's just, you know, there's a lot of things unfortunate. So I, again, we, we've talked about In the Heights. I really do appreciate talking through this controversy because I really wasn't understanding it. And now I understand it a little bit better. I, Jimmy, I'm not even sure if I understand it, but I think, again, it's this, this problem of representation. I just want to say in terms of very interesting, in terms of interracial casting was um, David Copperfield and kind of non-traditional I haven't seen that. Um, casting along race. I think it's on HBO Max or it's on Amazon. It's the Armando Iannucci yeah, one. Yeah, no, I, I got to check that out. It is, it's incredible. Oh. Um, I really enjoyed it and I really liked it quite a bit. And they, again, it's, it is not an, an all white BBC production kind of traditionally done. And I think it's kind of incredible and it opens up kind of in the same way for Shakespeare, the idea that, you know, Dickens, you know, imagine you're some kid in an English school who is not of European background and you're reading Charles Dickens. I I think, you know, it's the idea that, well, this doesn't, 
this has no meaning to you. It's sort of outside of, of your purview. And um, so I, I just think it's very well done. Again, this this idea, I think it just sort of opens it up a bit more. And um, it's it's a really good film. I think it's, it's quite good. There are certain films, stories, and if they're told that you might want to see um, completely historically accurate. Like, I, I think it could also be bad to go the other way. Like, all films and all stories... It, that, that I, it I completely like, agree. You know, so there's a time for it. But then there's other times where you make a decision to yes. mix up the casting and it becomes an artistic choice. But then it also, like yes. you said, it opens it up in that when someone watches a story, not that they wouldn't enjoy it if it was like all correct race casting, but they can look at that and say, it is possible. Like if I want to be an actor, oh, I could actually play these roles because yes. there was a long history in film where you'd watch these films and be like, Oh, I guess I'll never get a chance to play a B or C. And, and Jimmy, I, I just, I mentioned this. And the reason I keep harping on about it was that, um, <laughs> look, cause I keep running into people, as I said, you would think that I live in like Wokistan or something, but I keep, you know, <laughs> having these barroom conversations with like people like, who Yo, are still upset. Is that AOC <laughs> taking over the town or what? <laughs> you know, that AOC, you know, I even have that. Like, I, I have. I, I keep. I keep sitting next to these people. That AOC, she's a radical left. Kids baseball games. Kids baseball games, and you know, and bars who are still upset that uh, Samuel Jackson was cast as Nick Fury, and they got rid of David Hasselhoff. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm hoping that is not a true. Yeah. Or uh, well, or that you know, oh, Dune. What? What? They got rid of the Swedish guy, Max von Sydow. They made him. You know, they made him black and a girl. What? But see, we know what know what's so great about a thing like that. That person is simultaneously trying to show you a how racist they are, but b look at their film knowledge. <laughs> see, it's like uh, it's like uh, cousin. Oh, Chris- they, they they had to, they had to- Christopher. He's like, hey, Marty, Condoon. I liked it. <laughs> Yeah, that's the best part. Like the Sopranos, those those guys would all like try to show. Look at all the film knowledge we have. Almost every episode, they were like, you know, up up. I know that I knew they were going to change some character. There you go. All right, goodbye, Max Fonsito. It's like in the Heights, you know, when we make collections up there, that's not the way it looks. All right, they got to have authenticity. All right, when I go into those baristas and shake them down for money, they don't look like that guy. Yeah, see, no. we can bring it back no. to some humor. Okay, so, uh, you know, Disney Plus, right? You got to have that plus. Everybody's got a plus now, right? Just to let you know that the plus means money that you're going to have to spend uh, on the service. Disney's been rolling out these, I guess, second-tier Marvel. You have to have the Disney Plus so you can watch all of these, like, little TV shows so that you can get in with whatever uh, movies that they're going to have coming down the pike. And they've had the WandaVision, which, you know, kind of kind of liked. Then they had I liked it a lot. Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which I think I finished two episodes, and nobody in my family seems to like that. That's just a little bit of a chore. It gets better once it becomes a little bit more coherent, I would say. At the beginning, there's a lot of stuff they're trying to squeeze into the sausage at first. So there's a lot that's going on that I don't find it as um, compelling. And I, I heard you and Teal speak on this, um, but uh, yeah, so I just would say it becomes more coherent as it moves on. Yeah, we'll is see. What I would say. Eventually I'll get to it. But then they have this Loki. And I don't know why I was kind of interested in watching this Loki, but I know that, you know, you'd also been like, you gotta watch, you gotta, you gotta watch this Loki. So 
I, I watched this Loki. Watched uh, both uh, episodes yeah. that are available. So, uh, and, well, and, I mean, you're the big Marvel guy, not me. So, uh, Billy, what, what what are your thoughts on this Loki? Uh, I, I'm actually really quite enjoying it. Um, I'm enjoying it because they seem to be taking sort of some of the um, incoherence of the timeline scenarios that right. gets introduced in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the idea of how you're going to have, you know, when you have these sort of breaks in the time and how you can have multiple people existing at multiple moments of time. And they basically take that incoherence, that kind of gob of shit, I guess, that kind of is a problem in the larger thing, and they turn it into a football and run with it. They're like, yeah, that's right. Well, it also gives them a vehicle for bringing people back at any time. Should, should somebody's uh, bank account get a little light and they decide they would like to come back... <laughs> they can come back. Yes. And and so so I, I got to say, that takes balls to kind of double down on something like that. Like, you, you know, the, this kind of incoherence in, you know, their story. They're like, damn right. Let's do it. I, but from what I hear, there's actually comics based on all this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there are. There are. There, and in both DC and in, you know, they always kind of play around with this. But I um look, I, I actually so far I enjoy it. What I really I always liked and my kids always liked Tom Hiddleston, the um, the actor who plays Loki. And I think what they also address is how he goes from being an out and out villain in the earlier films to a much more sympathetic and engaging character because he really is a villain is of, of the old school. Is he that in this <laughs> <laughs> they're working on it, I think. And part of it is that... The redemption of Loki. Right. I mean, there is an arc with this character. He really is a kind of great baddie in the sense that he gets all the best put-down lines. He gets to be really snarky and obnoxious. And that's sort of what's what's a pleasure about the character and about um, Hiddleston's performance. And I think the introduction of Owen Wilson is Mobius? hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mobius. Okay, yes, yeah. Lame name, perhaps, but um, well, still. It's from the it's... comics. <laughs> what are you going to do? I know, I know. But but it's still, it's it, it, I, I enjoy it. I, I, and I have to say the one thing, so the things that I enjoy so far, Tom Hiddleston's performance, I think he and uh, Owen Wilson have great energy together. And lastly, the thing that I think is really, I'm enjoying the Production design, the art direction, I think is really quite good, I was going to say. I, I like it a lot. I think it's very well done. I think this and WandaVision both are, are have really nice design and are, are very clever. And, uh, the, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. But the one thing, though, that, that is interesting and, and actually maybe is a little bit annoying is, have you noticed, again, this kind of trope? where the forces of fate or the forces of the universe are represented as some like mid 20th century bureaucracy or kind of office. You know, it's the same thing. But yet you just said you liked the production design, but now you're complaining about that. I, I, well, I mean, but I, it, it's, it's, I think it fits this, it's a TV this show. trope. I actually think, yeah, but I think it does it better than like, I think the production design is better than say John Wick or something. So anyway, that's my take on it. I really think it's it's worth watching. And at this point, it's now middle of the week. That's what we're going to be doing for uh, the next couple of weeks. So your thoughts, sir? Well, you, know, you just said something that was kind of interesting about this, this trope about the bureaucracy thing. And that is becoming a, a, a kind of a thing with like the John Wick movies, right? Where there's this whole like other world run by this bureaucracy. And I noticed that in to some degree that that nobody movie 
which was also written by the John Wick guy. Yes. That, that has a, a feel to that. And now in July on Netflix, there's a movie coming out called Gunpowder Milkshake. And it's a female-centric version of that where there's a okay. society and it seems to be like, hey, let's do John Wick, but with females. And it features Karen Gillian, who is, uh, she's in Guardians of the Galaxy. She's the one that talks like this. You know, she's, uh, what's her face's sister yes. in that? Yeah, yeah. So she plays yeah, the lead in, sister. In, in Gunpowder Milkshake. So there definitely is a thing going on. But as far as Loki goes, there are a few special effects things that annoy me, especially when they go on to a new time. It feels very much like they're on a soundstage and they've put some digital backdrop in to look like that. That kind of annoys me. You and Teal have, have highlighted that. I've, I've become a little bit more aware of that because of your conversation. Well, it looks very yeah, there yeah, in yeah. this. Also, I'm not as much of a fan of when it gets very Marvel story. Like I could care, honestly... I'm watching it and I know I have to go through this stuff and I could care less about them going back in time and trying to catch this character who's under a robe and then it's going to get revealed. Like, I don't even really care about that stuff. To me, the reasons to watch this film or film, this shit, the series is all about, well, Tom Hiddleston. I mean, Loki was never one of my favorite characters. I'm just going to be honest. I mean, I'm a big fan of these things. But okay. to me, the standout, like it is such an amazing vehicle acted by Owen Wilson. It could be the best thing he's ever done. Yes. He is so outstanding in this. I don't know how they write the character so well, whether he's just able to adapt the material because he does a certain thing well. And it's sort of like Vince Vaughn. You have to get the right Vince Vaughn vehicle where he can just go to town. I mean, yes. Owen Wilson has never I, been I better. I absolutely agree. You like it so much, you got a mustache to uh, <laughs> honor the Mobius character. You just needed to gray up that hair That's a little right. bit. My Mobius stash. There you go. Yeah, he's he's really terrific. And I do you know he actually how he looks, who he reminds me of in a way. And this is, he looks like Bill Murray in Rushmore. A little bit, yes. Well, I guess the Mobius guy, a character. I don't want to read the comics, but I've I've read about what's going on here. Is the mustache is part of that character? And Owen Wilson right. wanted to do something different with his hair than his you know typical gruffy shag. So he Blondie. he expected. He said, "Can I maybe gray it up?" And I, I love that look. He like he looks slick. He looks cool. But my favorite thing right. in the writing is that here's a character. He's so laid back and everything. He knows everything about Loki and all his tricks. And he calls him out on all this stuff. And he's like, you've literally stabbed people in the back. He's people like, in the back 50, 50 times. Yeah, 50. It's, like, it's hilarious how he comments on all the stuff that we've gone through in Marvel movies, in a sense. He's like a Greek chorus, a conscience. And yet he's got his own character. He's very an interesting character. And and I think that's part of the thing with any series is that you start to look forward to the interactions between the two characters. And I so I'm excited to watch it every week for another four episodes. Ooh, ooh oh, wow. What? Wow, well, that's that's we the would, most. Well, we would I've do that with Wandavision to. too, where we like with uh, you know Captain America, we can't get through it, but like Wandavision every Friday, we watched it. But I thought it took you a little bit to kind of you you were a little like uh, hesitant about Wandavision, whereas here I think you're you're buying in a lot more 
sooner than you did before. Well, it's just fun, though. I got to say that sometimes, like, I thought maybe this was going to be a little bit of a time crimes show where each week it'd be like Highway to Heaven. They go to a new town and they got to solve a mystery or something. Uh, Remember that? That was like the big trouble. It was like, it it was sort of like with Bill Bixby and the Hulk every week, you know, he's just some weird guy in a town and they're like, oh, let's fix you up with a job. And in Highway to Heaven, there's these two dudes wandering around. Oh, we can get you a job as janitors at the school where there's going to be a problem. You know, that's right. Uh, that that used to be a big thing. They don't do that anymore. But like, I sometimes miss the sort of capsule episode of a show disjointed. Where, where like hey, we gotta right. we gotta solve. Instead, it's like all focused on this bigger picture thing. And I think that well, they're only doing six episodes and all trying to tie it into a movie. But it would have been nice to maybe have a show where Loki could actually help them out. I thought that we were gonna get a few like, hey, I'm gonna help you out with a few time crimes here. <laughs> You know, got to stop John Claude Van Damme in one episode. Like, you know, special guest star <laughs> this week, <laughs> Burt Convy. He's <laughs> your time criminal. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, yeah, who's Terry Bradshaw? Yeah, who's uh, <laughs> right? Who's the, uh, yeah, right. So, like, you know, this week, The Rock. Oh, but he's bad. <laughs> you know, they're going to turn into a sort of a love boaty type thing. But, anyways. Right. I don't really want to say anything more. John Saxon. John Saxon, I know. He's gone. I know. But he, he was on <laughs> yeah, many yeah. fantasy islands, and I used to love that show because I thought it was a real yep. place. I didn't understand <laughs> that. I was like, but this is weird. Like, is there a place you go and you pay $50,000 and you get your fantasy done? Like, and what, what's the scoop? Yeah, I didn't understand how uh, fantasy island. I thought the love boat was a real place, too. I mean, I knew that they were actors, but I thought there was like a real thing called the love boat. And I thought they went on cruises and shot all the episodes. I didn't understand until now. I look and go, "Oh, I can see shadows in that backdrop of the sky." <laughs> the gaffer walked by. <laughs> it's funny. Years later, I met a priest. I met a priest who was a writer. I know. You used boat. to tell me the stories. Yeah, he was a writer. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So right. Um, but does he let you take communion still, Joe Biden? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, he he would. He Speaking would. of priests and uh, blasphemy. Our next, uh, yes. our next topic, which is like now, you know, now we've talked for like, let me see, we've talked for almost an hour. <laughs> we don't Two have hours. much time left. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is Pride Month, all month. You can have Pride all month, and then you got to stop having some Pride. No, you can have Pride all year long. But in June, the focus is Pride Month, and the Criterion Collection, one of my favorites, they uh, are doing uh, a focus on queer cinema. They call it Queer Sighted is one of their themes. Mm-hmm. They did it last year, doing it again. And one of the focuses is John Waters, uh, three of his movies uh, from his early years. And also some other films that were influential on John Waters happen to also be in the collection. So, uh, you know, you were gracious enough to come on the show months ago. We talked about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And Beyond the Valley right. of the Dolls is showing on Criterion with, because uh, it's also part of their collection, it's showing with all their bells and whistles. So, you know, there's like some extras and there is... Yeah, you watched it with the commentary, the commentary correct? with Roger Ebert, who was the co-writer. Right. And it was fascinating to re-watch this movie and have him go through all this stuff and hear the history behind the making of it as far as a script. And uh, that was really fascinating. And so I, I'm recommending for people who have maybe seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, if you want to get a little bit more of an in-depth uh, look at it, you should watch it with the commentary. It's pretty cool. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, Roger Ebert, he he definitely took a very serious approach in the commentary. He's not like chuckling of like, uh, so it's very fascinating how he kind of breaks down this movie and its camp value kind of thing. But it was a huge, huge influence on John Waters, who went to see the movie opening day. And as he would do, he would like search out stuff that was right in his wheelhouse. And one of the things is that as I watched John Waters films over the years, I was probably introduced to him in my teens. And I think the first film I ever watched of John Waters, I knew about him before I saw any of his films, was probably Hairspray. That was my first actual taste. Right. And I loved Hairspray. So then the next film that I got to see was a double feature of Polyester and Pink Flamingos at the Somerville Theater. Right. Uh, got the scratch and sniff card. And I feel that there are certain films, and I, maybe not for kids today, I don't know, but there were definitely in our age, there were certain films that were like, I feel like rite of passage movies that you'd have right. to see. Things like Eraserhead. Um, you know, if you're a film person, yes. right? You had to see Eraserhead. You had to see Pink Flamingos. I mean, you could see other John Waters right. movies, but that was the one you had to see. Midnight Movies. Midnight Movies, right. And uh, and I've been obsessed with Midnight Movies for years. And I even re watched some uh, specials about Midnight Movies in preparation for this maybe five minutes that we're going to get to talk about John Waters. But uh, I had seen Female Trouble, which is one of the three movies that they're featuring on Criteria. And they're also featuring Pink Flamingos, which right. was fascinating to me because you, that doesn't show up on services like ever. So I was excited because I have not seen Pink Flamingos since that time in the theater when I was like 17 years old. So, I mean, it's been over right. 30 years since I saw Pink Flamingos. And there were certain things that always, like with a movie like Pink Flamingos, like every film, you kind of forget details, but you will never forget certain things out of that movie because they're so shocking. And we talked about it, uh, you know, on a couple of, like w whatever you were on in the fall, we talked about uh, some of the scenes and your friends hanging out, watching this and being shocked. I watched it with the commentary on your advice and I thought it was terrific to kind of see it again and to get his point of view. Well, yeah, so I watched, so I watched Pink Flamingos again and then I was like, I can't resist. I need to see it with this commentary. And I think it sounds like John Waters, and this is 97, this is 25 years after the movie came out is when the commentary was. And yet it's been almost another 25 years, which is crazy. He sounded a little embarrassed and even kind of said so about some of the scenes. Like he's kind of like, I wouldn't do that now. First of all, just watching the, I only watched um, two of the films that they're offering. I watched Pink Flamingos and I watched Female Trouble. I didn't watch Multiple Maniacs, but I just have to say he is kind of a genius and yes. in terms of his radical queer critique of American culture is just, it is hilarious. It is sharp. It is as biting a satire as you can have. I mean, it's outrageous. And the thing that was interesting to me is how shocking a lot of the Manson family stuff was and how he really means to shock. When you see them all together... That's where I think when you watch, like when I was growing up and if I made, like, you may not catch some of this stuff. And then you watch all three of these films together and he was very obsessed with the whole Manson family thing. And you see just how obsessed yes. he was through the plot lines, through the little Easter eggs that he has in there. And the yes. fact that he really did go to yes. the trial, which is pretty wild. And, and started to visit them in prison. So that's a little bit, you know, 
that that's pretty uh, shocking. And he was definitely a guy who was into his own sort of like radical politics. And 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 I think that's one of the great things about the commentary is how, quite frankly, revolutionary it sort of is, and or at least in its intent. It, uh, so I I just um my respect for him I have to say it increased through watching with the commentary just because of how articulate, how intelligent he was, how quite frankly open he was about stuff that was kind of embarrassing, you know, and stuff that would maybe be questionable you know, now. And yeah, I, 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 cause I gotta tell you, I was, I was prepared to come on and be like, yeah, this Manson family stuff. I, I don't, not really down with that and stuff. I, I think the way that he spoke about it was really very interesting. And, and he, he just provided a context to it that was, um, gave it greater clarity. Again, I think that, you know, it was funny. We began the discussion with In the Heights and, you know, how like today, like people jumping on social media, the, whether or not the controversy is valid, people love to create a controversy. And we think about, like, imagine if social media was back in the days when, like, a Pink Flamingos would come out, right? But right. now, so these films were influential on, I guess, our generation of wanting to be filmmakers. We go to film school. And if you think about, like, late 80s, early 90s, when we were at NYU, we see these student films. Not everybody. I mean, I was, I, I, I mean, I, I couldn't get, you know, I, I, I was very, I was like, I can't get an actor or actress to do A, B, or C. I may have had ideas of things I'd want, but I'm like, this is a student film. But we saw people, we saw kids that really pushed the envelope in terms of content. And we saw a lot of sexual things in student movies with kids, like actors, like you yes. can believe that people would do this for a student film. And I think that that was a, something where, you know, there was a different mindset going on. And you take it back into the early 70s, this group of Baltimoreans who were wild, yeah. anti-establishment, they were uh, counterculture, they were into a lot of drugs and stuff. And they, this is like, they didn't effing care. The stuff, when you watch Female Trouble and then you watch, well, you see also multiple, the, the divine is the greatest. How divine would do anything. Divine is amazing. Yes, the, the 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 show the show that Divine puts on at the very end of Female when, Trouble, when she's jumping up and down um, on the, the trampoline theater, and stuff, and the fish, oh and the, 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 that, and then running around with like the fish. I, I mean, it's mind blowing, and I, 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 it's it's absolutely hypnotic, and it's revolting, and and to, to think about like what a huge star Divine would be if alive today. Oh, I know. Um, is is kind of incredible. And what a trailblazer. And but, but here's another thing about the genius, right? Yeah. It's maybe unintentional because he admits, you can hear him on the commentary, and I'm talking about John Waters, he didn't know a lot about filmmaking. He just knew he wanted to film these things. And he gets better. He learned a lot. I actually thought he had, I think he had some natural talent. But you understand, like when you're watching all three of these films, one thing that becomes obviously clear, there are these painfully long scenes of dialogue and stuff. And he has a camera with a zoom lens and he's zooming in. He's trying to make cuts with zooms. He never cuts. And well, I think I always understood it as well. He didn't have the budget for films. We had to shoot everything. Couldn't do a lot of shots. However, he explains that he had, he was shooting with film that had a mag sound strip. And it was those color things that we got when we used to have super eight, but he had 16 millimeter reverse. And they did it for a news camera film back in the 70s. And so he couldn't cut because he also didn't know a lot about editing and didn't have the equipment. He had to 
cut it a certain way. So they would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse all of these scenes. So as if they were just basically doing a play, if they screwed up, he had to reshoot it again. It reminded me of of shooting early video, the way that like people used to have like home movie cameras and do something. It's like, okay, start. Yeah, we would do like you had to figure out what your edits were going to be because you couldn't, you didn't have anything to edit them. Uh, but here's what was so great when you watch these films. Again, some of them go long and it can make some parts a little slow, but what it achieves is a hypnotic effect where you want to look away when the scene gets a little bit too much, but you can't because he never cuts away to anything. You are forced to accept he's put everything here and you have to get it. And there's just the dialogue he writes, there is stuff that when you have female characters, right, say things that you would never hear in any movie it's so great. Ming Stoll's and, and coming out of Ming Stoll's mouth is the funniest thing. Well, that's thing. the best part. Is So there's obviously he has some really bad actors and he doesn't care. And some of them are terrible. But then you get occasionally a really good actor. And Ming Stoll it can actually act. Her character, Taffy Davenport. Taffy. What are you writing a book, hippie? <laughs> when she comes out, she's like... It is so surreal and creepy and the idea that she has this adult playing this little teenager so that they can have these sexual discussions and things and that Divine also plays Divine's rapist in the movie who becomes Taffy's dad and then yes. she goes to visit him and he's like yes. sticking out his dink, <laughs> dink, his penis and he's like, ah, come here, Taffy. <laughs> and it's so creepy and there's a there's a line to me out of all those John Waters movies I watch. It's the greatest line. Okay, say it, say it. I think it is. Go for it. Uh, Don Davenport's uh, boyfriend. He's sitting there, and Taffy first comes out, and he's looking at him. He's like, "Hey, Taffy." And he's lying there suck naked. My cock, and she's like, "I wouldn't suck your cock if I was if I was suffocating and your ball sack was filled with oxygen." <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe. That just came out of somebody's mouth. I howled with laughter. <laughs> Another character that I love in all of these three movies is David Lockery. And he's the one with that awesome mustache. And usually the- Yes, and the blue then the blue hair and pink right, flamingos. Right, one yeah. of the marbles in uh, Pink Flamingos. Uh, and he just cracks me up. He's so good. And multiple maniacs, yes. he's pretty good too. They 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 set up, they're like sort of like a freak show that people come, they set up a tent and they do it just so that they can actually rob the people that go in. And he's the barker. And he's like, ladies and gentlemen, come on in. You'll see two queers kissing, two actual queers. That's right. You'll get up and close and see them. Come in, ladies and gentlemen. You won't believe what you're going to see. Such filth and depravity. He he was so great. And and again, it's sad is that with some of these Dreamlanders, they didn't last too long. And in the late 70s, David Lockery, um, it, it's very unclear exactly what happened, but he was like high on PCP and I think he accidentally like cut himself and bled to death. He had gotten very heavily involved in drugs. And then another great action, she didn't really get any good starring roles in any of the movies, but she's a good side player is uh, Cookie Muller. And yeah. she's got, they've got these great, I mean, we talk about that uh, show with uh, uh, Kate Winslet trying to do this uh, Pennsylvania accent. The Baltimore accent is even more elongated and John Waters thrives in having these actors really accentuate the Baltimore accent. It's so great. Uh, Like when David Lockery, he calls up on the phone to the police, I think of Pink Flamingos, 
and he says, I just saw something. It's like, officer, you've got to arrest this one. She's a whore. <laughs> I love it. Like everything about these movies. I mean, Pink Flamingos is like pretty disjointed and it's just the idea of this plot. And it's funny when John Waters talks about it, how radical it was in the early 70s, but not so anymore. The idea of being the filthiest person alive. I love that there's a competition going on between these two people to become the filthiest people alive. I got to say, there's a Warner Brother Looney Tune quality to the, the combat. But in this and also with Ida in Female Trouble, <laughs> you know? the first time I heard of Pink Flamingos was roommates with a guy in a summer program when I was in high school who I later went to NYU. His name was Chum. And uh, he was obsessed. Yeah. And he was obsessed with pink flamingos. And he used to quote that cotton, cotton, egg. You know, cotton, cotton, like, cotton. <laughs> and, Are you the egg man? <laughs> yeah. So that's what made me like want to go see that movie straight because he never stopped quoting it. I mean, look, it's still even to this day. I mean, talk about holding up for its shock value. There's stuff in this film oh, that you aren't prepared for because it's just not like when you think of like an X-rated movie. Okay. If you're going in for a straight porno or something, you kind of know, I know what I'm getting into this film. Yeah. It, it, well, all three of these movies, by the way, are rated X. Genuinely shocking. I mean, I found the most shocking was in multiple maniacs because I didn't really know much about it. So I somehow I had forgotten. And then I was reminded there's a scene where, a, a, a big person in a lobster costume breaks in down the door in the end and rapes Divine. And, and that's pretty outrageous. But when she is reciting the Stations of the Cross and it's intercut with her sitting in a church service and then this woman, Mink Stoll, comes up behind her and then they start going at it and then Mink Stoll rapes her anally with a rosary. In a church. Yeah, with a crucifix, yeah. And so, yeah. And so, basically, they had to, like, they, they said to the priest, oh, we want to film in here. And they kept him outside for as long as possible while they shot that scene. And, you know, back then, it was like, he, he just did these things. It's pretty outrageous. And the movie, that one, it probably is his weakest. Like, I think he had some ideas. He got it more formalized in Pink Flamingos than... In Female Trouble, I think there's a little bit more of a cohesive plot, though I think it drags a little bit towards the end. But part of the first half of uh, Female Trouble, I really love. And when Taffy first comes on the scene, I just, yeah, again, Mink Stole for me That's, is the best part of that whole movie. You think about how polished Hairspray seems at that point. Yes. You know, like really how, I mean, it really, and, and, and for him... That's kind of playing it straight, but just an incredible, incredible film. Well, but he feels like it's a, his his sense of humor in all his films. It's just, I think he got, he grew up. Like, the best part about those early movies is it does show a lack of maturity. When you're immature, you like, how can I shock people? How can I be that outrageous? Yes. But you lose that as you get older. And I think that's what the charm is when you see this film is that, uh, you know, and again, I feel like it's still a rite of passage. I feel charm. like- Charm. I like how you're using the word charm. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> you know, if a film- Have you seen Desperate Living? I've never seen Desperate Living. Have you seen that? I've never, I've never seen Desperate Living. I've never seen Polyester. Oh, Polyester is really good. I, I really would like to see Polyester. And it's funny because at the time when it came out, and I didn't really understand who John Waters was. I didn't know his, you know, his movies. Critics didn't like it, right? But- when I finally saw it, I was like, I don't understand what the, what's the problem. But I realized as the critics 
there, there weren't John Waters. Right. It's just John Waters, but with a budget. I still experience midnight movies in a little bit of a different fashion. And I was just so proud that I wasn't 18, but they let me in, you know, because it was the Somerville. They let me in to see it. And I felt afterwards like I should receive a badge of honor. Well, I got a, I got the polyester uh, odorama card. <laughs> so I, I yes, should have, but which, like. Um, do you still have that? Well, no, I, I don't because uh, in the 90s. Oh, is that, I remember when you, when you stayed with me in Queens, they broke into the car and took it? Yeah, yes, that, along uh, with my wallet. But there was a guy, a <laughs> uh, cop on the neighborhood that got, we went and thanked him. No, in okay. the 90s, a guy knew, who I knew, who loved this kind of stuff, he heard that I had the scratch and stiff sticker. Uh, thing and he had rented polyester and he's like can i borrow that scratch and sniff because i would like to and i'm like sure he wouldn't he never gave it back and then he he did one of these things it was almost like out of a larry david episode where he pretended like <laughs> like he never he did give it back no he pretended like i never gave him the card that he had the card and it wasn't and it was a weird that wasn't what broke up our friendship <laughs> we got to drift it apart but i'm like dude what the hell i know what i gave you i'd like my card back thank you I won't mend the guy's name. He's still out there? He's still out. I don't think he probably okay. listens to the show, but I know him. Oh, he's there. And I'm going to, I'm never going to, okay. I mean, I'm never going to get that card back. I would cherish that card if I had it. Um, and it was great to scratch along when the numbers came up on the, the film. Yeah. So anyways, I, I kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's, you know, there's actually some other films on the Criterion Collection, uh, part of their Pride Month that I do want to check out. One, so they filmed in John Waters, like, house apartment, right? Some of these early movies. And on the wall, you saw this poster, and John Waters talked about it, called The Queen. And this is a seminal documentary in the late 60s uh, of a drag queen ball. And it is it's playing on the Criterion channel this month. And I watched the trailer for it and I'm definitely going to watch it. And then there's a couple others. But it's funny that one of John Waters' favorite films is a poster that's on the wall and it's Joseph Losey's Boom. It's on YouTube. I have to see it on YouTube, but I've got to see it now. I mean, if John Waters, if it's a, if it's a very influential film for him, but anyways, yeah, so there's a lot, uh, you know, we've given you a lot today. Uh, we go on forever, but we we can't. We have to we have to cut this uh, to the end because we're already at a, an hour and 25 minutes. Where did the time go, Billy? I'm just having a good time chatting, Jimmy. I know, Jimmy, I know. An old pal, I, you know, can I tell you? I have so many hours a month that they give me on the surface here. So, you know, I'm going to like cut it out. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, you know, so if you've never seen John Waters movie, you, A, you got to know, you know what you're getting into. And I'm not talking hairspray, okay? Yeah, you think you know John Waters, but uh, it, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the 70s John Waters. It was definitely stuff that will shock you. Uh, Pink Flamingos, probably the most notorious, the most shocking. And as he points out in the, in the commentary, and I thought this was really a key to the success, it doesn't start off that shocking. It starts off very, you know, campy and funny, but then... He kind of surprises you with some stuff. And I think it's when you go down to the marble's basement, when you have those women that are, they're keeping a hostage and then they get artificially yeah. inseminated. Yeah. I think that was one of the first times I was like, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. Plus, you know, in the 80s, yes. I didn't have any like uh, social media. I couldn't go on the internet and look up this stuff. All I knew is my friend was like, there's a scene where Divine eats dog crap. And I, of course, until you see it, you're like, oh, well, that can't be real, right? Well, it's real, baby. It's 100% real. No, it's it's real. And it is It's gross. real. No CGI. I mean, so the first time watching it after 30 years, I watched it, but I was like, it's it's not even when he puts it in his mouth. 
it's when Divine goes like this. It's the end. Yeah, and you just know it's all <laughs> kind of kicking around the mouth. That's really gross. But when the commentary, when I rewatched it, I had to look away. I couldn't rewatch it again. That's how powerful this guy. And he, the best part is, it seems like a throwaway. It doesn't really feel like it fits in the, the movie. He knew that that was going to be the end of the movie from the whole thing. It wasn't one of these just ideas they came up with. It was like we're doing this, and uh, that's right. And, and it was, that's but that's right. Why, like, it went, like the divine like agreed. It was like, okay, you want me to do that? That's fine. I, it's it's and it's it's of a piece. Like I said, with him jump with divine jumping around in the barrel of fish <laughs> on stage after. <laughs> that's Jesus. great. Don Davenport. <laughs> the most- oh. And I had forgotten, because I hadn't seen this in like, I hadn't seen that movie in like 12, 13 years. I forgot how Edith Massey like throws the acid in Divine's face and then his face is all like scarred yes. up with this ridiculous scar makeup and oh, it's so great. Yes. And then when Taffy yeah. becomes a Hare Krishna, <laughs> it's so great. Uh, all right, well, Bill, this has been Totally fun. And uh, thank you, listeners, viewers, as we are now on uh, our YouTube channel. But you can catch that on StuffWe'veSeen.com and uh, feedback at StuffWe'veSeen.com, Instagram, Twitter. But, you know, let's not go there because that's just a controversial place. All right, Bill from Queens, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jimmy. All right. Be well. And uh, a fond farewell to the great John Paragon. He uh, was Jombie, the genie in the Pee Wee Herman show, which was one of these big uh, things in the uh, early 80s that I watched on HBO and fell in love with. So long, Jombie, the genie. Becca like a high, Becca honey ho. Bill's just sitting there being quiet. You can talk, buddy. It's okay. We ended, but we're not ending. I thought I thought we said goodbye. We did, but you know, it's never, it's never a full goodbye. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Say goodbye to the people, Billy. Bye.